You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, for those of you who are keeping track as we go through Mark's Gospel, we've jumped ahead a little bit in our journey. Um, some of the uh, readings in between uh, a couple of weeks ago and this, we've done at different times in the year. Um, and Jesus, just to give you an idea of where we are, Jesus has finished his journey to Jerusalem. We've gone past the triumphal entry, and we're now at the end of Jesus' time of public teaching in the temple. That's what's going on in this scene. This is the very end of that public teaching. And it's a, it's a deliberately evocative scene that uh, Mark picks up on. Uh, I don't know if you've ever stopped to actually picture what's happening in this uh, event, as this, especially as this widow goes to put her money into the temple off- offering. Jesus sitting down opposite the temple collection. I mean, we know who he is, so we might imagine that's quite an intimidating thing. Jesus stopping to watch people as they put their money in. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Um, they, obviously, many people didn't know fully who he was. Um, the temple treasury was at the edge of the court of women in the temple in Jerusalem. And people would put in money into one of 13 trumpet-shaped metal collection funnels. Did you know that? Maybe some of you did. 13 trumpet-shaped collection funnels. Um, because they were made out of metal, any donations, which would have been metal coins, of course, that were made would have resounded for everyone to hear. And I think the trumpet-like shape would have probably made it even louder. So, um, you know, most people look around when you hear a coin drop. Uh, if you hear a coin drop on the paper, that'll catch your attention. But you kind of imagine the effect of people throwing in whole handfuls of uh, metal coins. There's a kind of magnetic pull. You can imagine the, the kind of chunky chug, 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 chug sound when someone wins a, a fruit machine in a pub, if you ever heard that. Uh, or the noise that in the supermarket when someone takes their coin collection and pours it into one of those coin converter machines, like that's the, that's the kind of a sound that would have been happening in these uh, in this situation. Uh, one after another, people came and and uh, they come and they donate their clattering collections into these uh, trumpets, crash, 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 and finally, this happened on uh, Thursday night as well. Finally, a widow comes with two coins. The widows in Jesus' time were typically very poor um, because they weren't allowed to inherit from their husbands. They were dependent on others. Uh, And if they were from a poor family or their husband had died young, they would have been virtually destitute. So even without Mark telling us, we could have guessed that this woman is likely to be very poor. And she's got these two coins, two leptons, they're called, which are the smallest coins you could get in Judea at the time. Um, Bernard, he preached for us last week as a coin collector, and he was telling us he's got a lepton in his uh, collection, and he was just telling us how tiny they are. They're a tiny sliver of, of copper, smaller than a, uh, an old English half penny, if you remember what they look like. Um, they could be about the width of a, a pencil eraser. That's, a, that's about the size of it, on the end of a pencil. Um, so she comes with these tiny two coins. You get a picture of how small they are? Um, she throws in her coins. We've had crash, crash, crash. And now there would have been the tiniest little chink, chink, maybe. They're, they're so light that even the slightest bit of moisture on them would have silenced the sound and made them stick to the inside of the funnel. That's how small they are. Um, so they wouldn't even necessarily have fallen in. And Jesus, and probably everyone else who cared to listen, 
would have known how little she had given. But only Jesus, who knows the secrets of men's hearts, knew how much he'd given. And he, he uses this phrase to express the generosity of her donation that he sees that no one else sees. We have this phrase in English, um, to make a living, to describe our source of income. And they had almost the same phrase in, in Greek, except instead of saying living, they would simply say life. And it could refer to your source of income, or it could refer to all the possessions you had. Uh, so when this woman puts in all her money, in Greek you could say something like this, she had given her whole life. That's what Jesus says literally in, this, uh, in the original text. And that's what Mark wants us to see. This isn't just a play on words, like she has given her whole life, yes, in colloquial Greek, whatever. But actually, she has given her whole life. Uh, She has done what Jesus has repeatedly. There's this theme all through Mark. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to give him your whole life. And here's this widow, the least likely of all the people we've come across so far in Mark's gospel, perhaps. And she's giving her whole life to Jesus. That's what Mark wants us to see. And he's challenging us as hearers, as readers of his gospel. You have seen Jesus. You've heard his teaching. You've observed the way he is with people. You've seen his heart go out for the people. Uh, God says to us through his word this morning, are you willing, are you willing, like this widow, to give Jesus everything, your whole life? So that's the big picture, uh, the overall scene, as it were. Uh, But God's word isn't just there to challenge us, it's there to raise us up, it's there to encourage us, instruct us how to give everything to Jesus. And although this message, as I've said, is something Mark repeats again and again through his gospel, the picture of the widow and her two coins emphasizes kind of two particular aspects of, of how we give our whole lives to Jesus, of what that actually means. So it, we, we're going to look at those two things in turn. We're going to look at giving God our lives with an undivided heart. That's the first thing. And we're going to look at giving God our lives, giving to him liberally. And I'll explain what that means when we come to it. And there are kind of challenges and encouragements in both parts. So firstly then, the widow shows us that we can we should give with an undivided heart. God doesn't call many people to literally give away all of their money in one go, like he did with the rich young ruler, for example. Um, Or like this widow does, he literally gives away all her money. But that doesn't mean that we're off the hook as Christians just because we don't have that particular calling. Well, the first thing we want to realize today is that every Christian, everyone who follows Jesus, has to do what this widow did in spirit, if you like, in principle. We have to give our whole lives to God. And that's what it means to have an undivided heart. God wants us to recognize that we have to give our whole lives to him. I remember a friend of mine from school telling me that their mum had a secret bank account uh, that the dad didn't know about. So that if anything ever went wrong with the marriage she'd be able to leave him without having to ask for any money. (laughs) Now, you can debate the wisdom of telling your teenage child that. Um, I'm not sure it's such a great example. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's something weird about that. There's something that's not in keeping with the vows that we make when we get married, which are the word for word or pretty much in principle the same. We will say something like this to our spouse. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. 
Those are, those are the vows we make. But those vows are a great picture of what it means to have an undivided heart. They're, they're, they're more... Uh, they're about more than just being willing to share everything in terms of like, yeah, I don't mind if you borrow my stuff. <laughs> That's not what those vows are really about. When you make those vows in a marriage, you're promising to give yourself completely to the other person. And they are promising to give themselves completely to you. Well, why? The principle behind it is that you're not providing anymore for your own needs. It's not just you looking after you. But you give yourself away to the other person and they then you trust that they then will provide your needs for you. And in this exchange of gifts, we understand as Christians, there's something more going on than just simply a social contract that you know is nice. In that exchange of gifts, we actually open up our, our lives to the mystery of living in the love of God. That mutual self-gift. When we become Christians, we are in effect making the same promise to God. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. We are vowing, if you like, to use our whole lives, all of our time, all of our money, all of our abilities, all of our possessions, homes, everything, to share them with Jesus. Not to say, you can have them if you want, anytime you like, but to actually, actively give them to him. To bless others for the glory of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we trust that as we do so, God then returns to us everything that we need. So Peter writes about that in 1 Peter 4. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. There's a film that I used to watch in the days of VHS, and you'd take films off the telly and You'd have like three and you just watch them again and again. For those of you who aren't too young to know what, what I'm on about. There's a film I taped off the telly called Brewster's Millions. Does anyone remember that film? Uh, well, the, the, a very quick plot summary. This guy inherits a fortune from some distant relative and he's given this choice. You can either have a million dollars right now or you can have 30 days to spend 30 million. And if you spend it all completely, you'll inherit 300 million. That's it. That's, that's the idea of the story. It's, it's pretty, well, it's kind of a lame film, but it's, yeah, I thought it was good at the time. <laughs> um, you know, there's something about that in what it means to be a Christian, actually. God gives us amazing gifts, but the, the idea is that we, we give them all away so that we get ten times more back. That's the idea. Whatever those gifts are, that's, that's what God calls us to do. That should be our attitude as, as the Christians. There, there's a, we're called to give everything, and there's this reward in doing so. You know, we have great examples of that throughout Christian history. One of them is John Wesley, who, when he, who was famous for living a life where he gave everything away. Almost by literally he gave his, his money away. He was supposed to have subsisted on a diet of potatoes. I don't really know if that's true or not. So he could give more money away to the poor. But when he died, he left a handful of books, a Geneva gown, which is the robe they used to preach in, six silver spoons that somebody had given him that he asked would go to the, the pallbearers, Six pound notes, and that was it. And thousands and thousands of people who come to Christ in the Methodist revival. So that's got to be the aim of our living, to give it, to give everything to God, to give with an undivided heart. We have to acknowledge, and in principle, we have to give everything away, whether we're called to literally give it away or not. Well, I hope you get the idea. 
The question that arises immediately, I think, is, is this realistic? Is that actually, okay, you said not everyone's like the rich young ruler, but is it actually realistic for us to live that way? Don't we have to hold things back? Don't we, you know, that sounds very difficult to do. Doesn't it lead to a kind of otherworldly or over-heavenly minded way of living? Isn't it, isn't it more complicated? Isn't it too complicated to figure that out? Well, it is complicated to give everything away when you're not supposed to do it all in one go. That's true. It would be easier in some respects for us to be like this widow and just have two coins and go, well, I can keep none, or one, or <laughs> two. Well, I'll just give them all away. Or, like the rich young ruler, for Jesus just to appear and go, I want you to give all your possessions away. There you go, choice, black and white. But he doesn't do that to everyone. Why does God not call us all to be like that? Well, he tells another parable um, in Luke 12 that gives us the opposite example that tells us why he doesn't demand everything of us right up front. It goes like this. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I think he's quite an old chap speaking to himself like that. But anyway. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And this is the key bit. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus finishes, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. This guy was foolish, Jesus says, because he didn't get that God had made him rich, had given him abundant harvest so that he could bless other people. God had given him land and crops and good weather and barns and time so that he could bless others. We know this because God says to him, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? He just hadn't thought of it. So if God hasn't called you to make a literal vow of poverty to sell everything you have uh, in one go or to to live an unusual lifestyle, if he hasn't done that, that's not because he expects less from you. Do you understand? It's not because he expects less from you. It's God doesn't let us keep stuff and lead relatively normal lives so that we can give less to him. It's so we can give him as much as possible. That's what he's expecting from us. So we can love as much as possible. We can give as much of our lives as possible. And for those of you who are not called to that extreme lifestyle, like the rich young ruler, this is the calling that's on your life. To give as much away as possible through living uh, a relatively normal life. That sounds a bit weird to say that, but it's true. And knowing that is your goal gives the right order to our lives. It doesn't lead to a weird, unrealistically spiritualized view of the world, but it helps us to order our lives correctly. So, in terms of business, we're called, if God calls you to run a business, you grow your business, you work hard at your job, yes, to make more money. Hooray! Why? So you can give more away and and bless more people with the excellence of your work. So, it, it, it doesn't like take away from time spent learning, for example. If God's given you the ability to, to learn well, it's not... So you can indulge your curiosity and get lost in, in books. It's, it's not so you can avoid working with your hands. It's so you can be wise and use the other gifts he's given you well. And maybe to teach other people. If, uh, 
in handling our money, you take a difficult decision like how much money to put aside for a, a pension. Some of you will have to face that choice. You know, you weigh that decision up, not with the idea of, I want to play as much golf as possible when I retire, but I want to continue blessing people as much as possible when I retire. That, that's, that's why you put money aside for a pension. So you, so you see, it doesn't lead to another worldly, weird way of living. It does in one sense, but maybe not in that obvious way like for the rich young ruler. It is realistic. You know, it, it gives us space to practice something you're good at. Yes, yeah, spend your time doing something you enjoy, but not for the sake of the admir- admiration of others, but so you can give glory to God and delight the hearts of other people to point them to him. When, when God calls us to free ourselves from addictions, whatever they might be, it's not just so you can give, so you can have more time or money. It's so you can give more time. Give more money so you can have an undivided heart. You know, there's even sense like in our home lives, you can make your house beautiful. You can take good holidays, but not so you can simply rest, not simply so you can just have time off, but so you can rest well. Why? So you can delight yourself in God. So you can serve him and serve others as well as possible. Rest is actually a really good example in our, our culture. We have so many ways to rest. An undivided heart doesn't mean you're so selfless you never think about yourself. It, it means that you look after things God has given you so you have as much to give of yourself as possible. And rest, is that's what it's for. That's what leisure is for. It's, it's to enable us to give ourselves fully to others. And knowing that, just having this as, your, as the principle in our lives, to, to have an undivided heart, when we rest, it actually helps us to know what we're doing. We know, I think most of us in our conscience know when rest or leisure crosses over from being, I really need to, have, I really need to rest and gather myself and, so I can give and work hard. We know how much, really. I don't think we need a lot of help with that. And when that crosses over into indulgence uh, and selfishness, whether it's, you know, this holiday or that treat or this bit of computer gaming or watching trashy TV, you can do all those things to rest legitimately. But we know there's a point at which it becomes self-serving instead of an undivided heart. So that's the rule of giving everything away. And it gives this, gives rise to this diversity of different ways of living that God wants to see in his church. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, some applications then from this first point. When you don't have much to give, give it away anyway. God loves it when we offer him the things we don't think are worth very much. Because, because we don't, you know, we don't have much to give of them. He loves it when the, the poor singer praises him with a loud voice. He, he loves it when the person who's hardly got any finances gives as much as they can. He loves it when the person with just half an hour to spare spends it with someone, even though they think, is it really worth going to see that person? It is, it is worth it. He loves it. He blesses it. He loves it when, uh, people who don't find conversation easy go out of their way to talk to the person who looks like they're on their own. <laughs> Or when the awkward, self-conscious evangelist shares their faith, even in the, the tiniest way, God loves it and he blesses it. You know, there may be so many areas of life, or maybe just one or two, where you feel, I just don't have much to give. God says, give it anyway. 
Let me multiply the gift. Let me weigh how much this thing is worth. Let me see how much I can do with it. Don't you worry about it. He is so pleased when we bring him the small things in our lives. When you don't have much to give, give it anyway. Another application. We have to ask God to help us to be truly wise in how we order our lives. You know, there's this picture hidden away in this uh, in this scene of Jesus sitting down opposite the treasury. And the picture is of Jesus sitting down in judgment. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He says, we shall all stand before the tribune, before the judgment seat of Christ, and give an account for how we lived. There is a huge honour and responsibility when God calls us, calls us to live undivided lives. We have to live them as if we are living before Christ's judgment seat and try and be as honest and undivided as we can. And it's not easy to do. That, that's, I think that's a really weighty thing God would say to us. We need to acknowledge that is not easy to do. Look at the scribes who everyone thought was amazing in the first half of, of the reading. And they found it almost impossible. God wants us to have pure hearts. And for that, we need his help. We need wisdom. We need energy. We need perseverance to organize our lives over a long, long period of time. We need to know ourselves. We need to know what God's calling is on our lives. We need to measure ourselves by fear of God and not by measuring ourselves against other people. We need God's help to do those things. And what I'm urging you in this second application is just a humility to come before God and say, if, my, if you call me to have an undivided heart and give everything to you, I want, Lord, your wisdom to help me to do that. James writes, uh, James 4, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God is the one who does those things. We know the Bible tells us our hearts are deceitful above all things. We need his help to, to understand its ways, don't we? Because only he understands the ways of our hearts. Now, I remember hearing about a couple who got married at a church in London, a Christian couple, and their wedding cost £100,000. Now, I don't know them, and I don't know the personal circumstances, and I don't know whether they were able to justify that in their own hearts before God. But what I'm saying is that would take an awful lot of help from God to figure out that it's okay to spend that kind of money on a wedding. And the argument would go, I imagine, one of the arguments would go something like this. You don't know how much money they give already, right? Maybe they're giving millions of pounds a year. We don't know. Maybe they give several times the amount of that wedding to charity already. But here's the thing that God wants us to see. It's weighing up the value of our possessions, whether it's finances, the value of our time or efforts, to serve other people. Whether you give away £500,000 a year and save £100,000 for yourself, it's not, proportion isn't the issue. God isn't interested in the proportions. He's interested in, do you get how much that's worth in my kingdom? Do you get how much the person who's starving, who has nothing on his plate, would need your money? Then weigh his needs against yours and ask me for help to do that. You know, we talked about John Wesley a little bit earlier. John Wesley was, uh, it, it was said once he, or he was quite prone to stopping his preachers, if he saw someone who was wearing ostentatious clothing or jewellery, and he would point to, to that person, he would say, you, dear sister, 
Do you know that this very day in the town of St. Ives, there is someone who has no meal for their family? And what you're wearing around your neck could keep that family for a month. Go and sell it now. (laughs) You know, I'm not saying it's as simple as that. I'm not actually saying that it's as straightforward as that. I'm saying that there are reasons why it's okay to spend money on yourself. There are nuances. What I'm saying is it's hard to do. And that we need God's help to be honest with ourselves and to have wisdom to do that thing well. And and it's real joy when we actually understand and come to a a reasoned decision. I I should give this much, whether it's money or time or, or whatever it is in service of others, there's real joy and freedom in actually thinking, this is the right amount. You don't have to keep looking at each other and say, is it okay for me to do this? You know, It's really, really good. Okay, so we have to ask God's help to be truly wise. Third application from this first point then. Make the most of your circumstances. Make the most of your circumstances. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 7, talking about marriage or being unmarried. So he he writes this, 1 Corinthians 7, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his his interests are divided. An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Who lives in undivided devotion to the Lord in that picture? Just the single people or the married people too? All of them. (laughs) But he's saying, if you're single, look at the opportunities you have. Don't be thinking (laughs) about what you don't have, but think about how the opportunity you have to, to serve God with an undivided heart and make the most of it. If God has called you to be married, in one sense your interests are divided, but you're still called to give everything to God. So you throw yourself into that situation. You look, you, if you're a husband, you care for your wife as Christ loves the church. As a wife, you submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Uh, you look after your children in your home. You work in your job and you, you put all into it knowing that it is all for the glory of God. Whether it's easy or whether it's hard. God is saying, like, I, I want you to give everything so that you can be blessed to the utmost. So make the most of your circumstances. The fourthly, application. And we're still on the first point, just to give you a bearing. We have to ask God to free us from fear. You know, I, I think back to that mum of the person at school I was with. What's going on in that heart that you have a secret bank account? It's fear, isn't it? Sometimes we hold things back from God, not because we don't know what to do, not because we're selfish or thoughtless, not because we haven't got this point about giving everything, but because we're afraid he's going to let us down. We have our own secret bank accounts. We hold back from giving financially, not to be prudent, but because we fear a life without a certain amount of financial security or even luxury. We hold back from giving time to people, not so we can rest well, but because we're afraid of being taken advantage of. We have to ask God to free us from our fears so that we can give everything to him. David writes Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And God can do the same 
for us today. John writes in his first letter, There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid. Because fear has to do with punishment, he says. So this question then, aside from everything else we've talked about, is there this secret bank account in your own life, some part of your life you're holding back from giving to God out of fear that he's not going to provide for you or meet your needs in some way? And I'm not just talking finances. Ask God to show you and to set you free. So, the widow teaches us to give with undivided hearts. Second point then, to give freely, liberally. So I just want you to picture this uh, widow at home that morning before she takes her journey to the temple. She gets up and she starts the day the same way she has thousands of times since her husband died. She arranges her clothes, are worn, nearly threadbare. She eats the stale leftover bread from the meal last night. She says her morning prayers. She considers the day ahead and the task she needs to do. Perhaps she realizes she's got to go to the marketplace to buy some flour, some oil to make some, some more bread. She takes out a small purse and immediately she feels, she remembers how light it is. There's nothing left. Well, almost nothing left. She puts her fingers inside the, the little pouch and uh, she feels two tiny slivers of copper, so thin and light they stick to the ends of her fingers. Enough, maybe, to buy ingredients for a tiny loaf of bread and nothing more. She can buy one more day of life before she really begins to starve. And she also knows her duty as a devout Jew to give a tenth of her income to God. And the day has come for that. And the words of the psalm come to her mind, memorized through a life of repetition and worship. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Filled with love for God and trust in his provision, in a moment she decides what to do. I, I won't give a tenth. I can't give a tenth. How do you give a tenth of two tiny pennies? I will make a free will of offering to God and give him everything. And she sets off on her journey, thinking that no one but herself knows her plan little knowing that God watches over the widow in rather unusual ways on that day. In material terms, she didn't give more than everybody else, did she? But in this act of trust and love, she makes a gift of her whole life. And there is a, a liberality that God asks from us. And it's not just the, the actual giving of our whole lives and his preparedness to, to give everything, but it's this attitude of freedom and sacrifice and lavishness in giving ourselves to God that he, that he asks from us. That this is how we give ourselves to him. It can't be with a kind of restrained, kind of like, oh, if I have to. It's got to be out of a lavish spirit, like a, a river breaking its banks. That, that has to be a living principle in our lives as Christians. And that arises out of faith and love for him. And God said that that lavishness, that liberality in giving ourselves to God in every part of our life should characterize us. Well, you might say, isn't that liberality just reckless? I mean, this woman 
Wasn't she going to starve now? Wasn't it worth just an, an extra day of her life? Is, doesn't this, uh, this lavishness, doesn't it break the whole point? You said you've got to think carefully and ask for God's wisdom of how to order your life in all these various ways. And, you know, it's really hard and the heart's deceitful. You know, we thought about it really hard. We made our decisions. And now you're saying you've got to be like, here you go, God, have everything. Isn't that contradictory? Why, why is that liberality so important? Well, it's important for a few reasons. It, firstly, it's important because only by giving lavishly to God, freely and liberally to him, do we find out our true capacity to give. Imagine Bradley Wiggins, Tour de France winner, gets on a bike one day, pedals around the park, goes, oh, I'm a bit out of breath, probably give that a miss. <laughs> First time he's ever got on a bike, and he never does any more. You know, he's, he's got these incredible genetics, this genetic predisposition to be a Tour de France winner, but he never knows because he never tries. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger goes to the gym as a scrawny 13 year old or something, picks up a dumbbell, and, oh, yeah, it's a bit much. I'll, I'll just, I won't bother. <laughs> but you know, so many Christians are like that because they're robbed of the joy of giving as much as they can to God out of their lives because they never push themselves. So God wants us to give liberally so that we can find our capacity. He wants us to, to push how much we give. I think that's good news. I think that's good. Giving liberally purifies our motives as well. That's one of the things that actually helps us to have pure hearts. Jesus says in Luke 11, Give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. If you want to have pure motives, if you want to give everything to God, one way to purify your motives is to give more and more. You think think about the woman who breaks that jar of perfume on Jesus' feet. And it's extravagant and everyone is scandalized and Judas speaks up. <laughs> the fact that it's Judas gives you the clue, right? Judas speaks up. We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. He thinks he's speaking Jesus' words back to him, doesn't he? And Jesus says, no, she sees more clearly than all the rest of you. <laughs> you see, it purifies the heart. So when we give more, when we give in this lavish way, this liberal way, it purifies our heart. <laughs> Another reason why it's, it's good to give liberally is it engages our will. You know those um, charity collectors, those people who ambush you on the high street in Queen Square or whatever in Crawley and they try and get you to sign up for a direct debit? You know they get like a bonus for signing up for a direct debit? You know why? Because you set it and you forget it and you give and give and give and you never even feel the pinch. It doesn't, you, one act of the will, okay, I'll sign the direct debit and no more acts of the will are necessary. That's why they do it. That's why they love direct debit so much. God, in giving our lives to God, in whatever way, God doesn't want a dispassionate, just kind of, I've decided right at the beginning, this is how everything's going to go, and then just wind up like clockwork and let it go. You like Spock from Star Trek or something. Like, I figured out the most prudential way to give away my whole life to God, and I'm never going to have to think about it again, and I can just Go on autopilot. You know, so actually, I've even thought about this, like in the way we collect money at church. You know, we like it when you give by standing order too, for some of the same reasons. Because <laughs> it, it's easy, right? And it helps us to predict the finances of the church. I said I wasn't going to be the bad cop on Thursdays. So I'm not going there, don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, I thought about maybe we should have a collection plate, you know, so that we engage that will you know I don't, I'm actually not party to how much any of you give to the church I keep well out of that but I wonder if instead of having to go through your standing order you actually had to put 
that wadge of notes into a collection plate once a week or once a month or whatever it is, whether it would feel different. I think it would. I think it would. I wonder if we'd give less or more. I don't know. You know, it's the same thing in a marriage. If you like, um, hello, dear wife, we're married, and I think it's time that we kissed one another, because that's what marriage involves. You know, it's like, there has to be a freedom, a spontaneity about about a marriage relationship, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis said something like, a kiss, or I think it might have been saying I love you, I can't remember, is both the expression and the fulfillment of love. And that's true. When we engage our will, when we give freely, when we give lavishly, not just out of habit, but when we actually engage our will, there's something freeing and fulfilling and beautiful about it. Our giving should be habitual, but it's a habit where we, we are in the habit of making a choice to do what is right. Not a direct debit habit. And if we do that, what you find is that when you live in this prudent way and you plan your life and you, th- and you think, how can I give as much to God? There is this hunger inside you where you're basically crying out to God, God, I've, I've done the best I can, but I want to be able to give more. Whether it's finances or time or gifts or whatever. And every time you have to say, you know, I'm going to reserve this bit because I need to, say, recharge my batteries. I'm going to reserve this bit because I need to have some money for when I retire or whatever it is. And you reserve something for yourself. There's also a sense of loss and sadness that you have to do that because you're like, God, but God, if it's possible, can you give me more so that I can bless more? That only comes when we engage our will. And another reason why we should give lavishly because it makes us grow. You know, we don't have a set capacity when it comes to giving our lives to God. You know, I've heard it said, I don't know if this is like an urban myth, but that our stomachs stretch when we eat too much consistently. You heard that? And then, and if we consistently eat large meals, our appetites increase, so we feel less full. We have to eat more to feel satisfied. Well, that may not be a positive thing, but in the kingdom of God, it's a positive thing. When we give more to God than we have to, when we give lavishly, liberally, when we make a a sacrifice and go above and beyond what we currently think is the right thing to do, the more we sacrifice, the more we are filled with spiritual food. And our appetite for God's love grows. We grow in faith and God uses our faith. You know, and we do that. He says to us, he says, at the end he's going to say to us, well done. Good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. That's the invitation that's waiting for us. So this is the second point, to give liberally. And those are reasons why it's prudent. (laughs) It's to give liberally. Some applications. How do we we give our whole lives to God liberally? Well, firstly, give God what you owe him and what you don't owe him. Or what you think you own, what you think you don't own. <laughs> you know, the widow gave her tithe and she gave a free will offering. You know, so we have things in our lives that we should give to God. That's kind of our duty to give to him. We should come to church on a Sunday. But if you only ever worship God on a Sunday <laughs> for an hour and a half or a couple of hours, it's not going to have that stretching effect on your soul in terms of your capacity to worship God, is it? 
In fact, it's probably going to have the opposite. It's going to, your stomach, if you like, spiritual stomach, is going to shrink. We, we owe God to, to come before him, I would say, every day and praise him and thank you for him for the day he's given us and commit it to him. I think that's fair enough. I'm not going to give you a Bible verse or bind you with legalism, but I, I think that's a, a fair, accurate, of a kind of minimum thing that we owe God. We owe God a kind of quiet time and come to pray to him every day. But if you only ever pray in your quiet time, you're not going to grow in the way God wants you to grow. <laughs> we, owe, we owe God our money. We, we, we should give a percentage of our income away. But if you only give the minimum of what you've decided in your heart to give, then you're never going to grow in that capacity to give. In, in, in fellowship, if you come and have fellowship with people at church, you know, and you come to Agape and you hang around, you're like, okay, that's not done for a week. Don't have to talk to any of those losers for another six days. <laughs> None of you would do that, I know. But if you never ever seek to spend time with people outside of church, you're, you know, you're not, you're never going to really find out what your capacity is. You're never going to really enter into that joy that God has for you of becoming, of being able to give as much as He wants to, to give through you. You understand? If it's helpful. There's a, there's a hard challenge here too. Uh, I think God wants me to bring. Some of you aren't even giving what you owe Him. You know, it's just a case of doing what's right and just. Uh, forget the lib- liberal, lavish giving. You know, make excuses for church who don't pray or whatever it is. And here's the point: you know, God isn't guilt tripping you right now. If that's you, He's not looking at you with a, a big eyes. So wounded. He wants you to know that the opposite is happening to what should be happening. Your appetite for God and for his love is shrinking. He wants it to grow. And, and he just calls you this morning to make a resolution, whatever area of, his, of your life it is that you're holding back from, to put it right. And if you, if you found it hard because there are practical obstacles or there are willpower issues or whatever it is, then make a resolution not to pull yourself up and try harder, but to sincerely ask God who gives when we ask him. Ask him to help you to do that thing and to do what's just. Okay, so given what you owe him, what you don't, given what is easy and what is hard. You know, Jesus says this about the widow. All these other people gave out their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. We should give out of our abundance and our poverty. There are some things in your life that you find easy to do. God has given you gifts and he's given you situations where you find it easy to serve him and serve other people, which is fantastic. That's part of who God has made you to be. Paul writes about that in Romans 12. We have different gifts according to the grace God has given us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. God uses these natural gifts in amazing ways. But there are also things in this life that you are rubbish at. And God says, give those too. Try your best with those things too. Give what is easy and what's hard. And we grow in giving liberally by always asking God to show us how to give more. You know, I just, I'd urge you this morning to ask God, show me, Lord, how can I give more of my life for your glory and the service of others? And I just think that is a prayer 
he absolutely loves. If you don't get this morning that being a Christian is basically just growing forever and ever and ever, <laughs> you are going to miss out. That is what it means to be a Christian, to grow more and more, ever more into the likeness of Christ. There is no kind of standing still. And God wants us to have that hunger to be as much like Jesus as possible, to give as much of ourselves away as possible. He challenges us again and again. And sometimes it's just really small, silly things where we just feel this kind of like, oh, I don't really want to do that. And God says, no, I want you to do that. I remember just being a teenager and standing in worship and looking around at all these people with their hands in the air and thinking they were really silly and like unrestrained and unreserved and, you know, it wasn't me. And God is saying, yeah, no, I just like you to put your hand up and praise me. I'm like, no. <laughs> but, you know, the, just to give you a really silly example, it, it is small because there are really important things that God asks us to do this. But there was such a freedom and a sense of devotion and worship that came with that, that it was, it was a, a momentous time, in my, a, a turning point in my life to be able to worship God in my heart. I remember going to church elsewhere and no one would put their hands up and just feeling like, what's wrong with everybody? <laughs> you know, recently in prayer, I felt God challenge me. You know, I, I, I come to terms with my, uh, what should I say, my limitations in prayer. I've given up on the fact that, you know, I'm not going to be like Martin Luther and praying like three hours every, 17 hours every morning before the sun gets up or <laughs> Uh, I'm okay with that. I, ju- I would just like to pray sincerely, like in a heartfelt and devoted way with praise and attention. You know, I just I want to pray solidly. And I'm happy for whatever time God gives me to enable me to do that. I'll just tell you that. But I'm always asking God, help me to do that as much as possible. And you know, just uh, just recently I felt God put a picture into my mind of, of when I met him, the Lord Jesus, for the first time and me going to kneel down in front of him. And just finding it really awkward. Because I never kneel. And I just felt it's this prompt from the Lord saying, I don't want the first time you kneel before me to be when we actually meet face to face. I want you to be well practiced. And I just felt him asking me to, to, not all the time, but just sometimes to kneel before him in prayer. Habitually. And you know, actually, it's made a difference. It made a difference in my ability to, well, my attitude and my ability to concentrate and all sorts of things. And all sorts of other cool stuff that God is doing through that. So sometimes it's a little thing that God asks us to do. So I just encourage you this morning, have that attitude of always giving more. And when you have that prompting to make a, a sacrifice to God, to give more, whether it's prayer or worship or fasting or finances or whatever it is, just know this, God is often about to do something big in your life to make a breakthrough. So give with an undivided heart, give liberally. Just to finish, I also think God would challenge us with this one other thing, to give magnanimously. We've, I think God wants to share a picture that this scene conjures up, not just to instruct us and teach us, not to challenge us in specific ways, to implant a picture in our minds. And I think that there's a, there's a picture in a way that Jesus saw spiritually as he sat down um, I'm imagining, I'm not saying this is, you know, God's told me this is exactly what's happened, but I just feel like it's good for us to imagine this. As he looked at this scene of giving, this from a heavenly perspective, and Jesus saw what was really going on, not in the natural, but in the spiritual. And he saw these, these scribes, and they were like tiny little children dressed up in parents' clothes, but taking themselves incredibly seriously. And when no one was looking, they were stuffing sweets into their pockets. And you could see their hearts, and instead of being like a normal heart, they were shrunken and black like raisins. 
And he could see the people coming to, to give their money, to pour their money, clash, 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 into the, the trumpets for everyone to hear. But spiritually, they're dressed up in silly clothes too and covered in ridiculous amounts of makeup all over their faces and they're carrying armfuls of worthless monopoly money of every colour and dumping it into these trumpets. And then the widow comes. And in an actual sense, she is old and shrunken and her clothes are tatty and people pay no attention or barge past her. She carries her two tiny coins. But when Jesus sees from the perspective of heaven, she is glorious. She looks like a queen. She's beautiful and upright and shining with God's glory. And the light comes from her heart and fills the whole temple. And in her hands are two gold bars that reflect the light and cover everything with the orange glow like a, like a sunset. And as she drops her coins, instead of trumpets ringing, they sound forth and every face in heaven turns around to watch and marvel and praise God for this woman and her faith. And the, the picture came with a word, magnanimous. And it's a funny word, we don't use it much. It comes from Latin, magnum means great, and animus means soul. She was great souled. You know, and God wants to say to us this morning, the real treasure in that temple was not the money in the treasury. It was the great soul of the widow. God can do more for his glory and for the blessing of the world with a single person who truly gives their life to him in faith and love than all the riches in the world. When he, we give ourselves to him completely, he makes us great souls and he pours his love into us and through us. And that's the goal of our faith. Jesus himself saved us through his own magnanimity, through offering himself completely to the Father for our sakes, by dying for us on the cross. He withheld nothing and because he withheld nothing, God poured his love into him and through him without limit. He became, as the Bible says, a life-giving spirit, the very source of the river of life. And that should be what motivates us. All these things we talked about, to give everything to God. Not only gratitude at what Jesus has done for you, although that is a massive part of it, of course. But this realization that you, Christian, are destined to be like Jesus. To be filled with God's love as the ocean is full of water, as the, the heavens are full of stars. We are destined to be filled with God's love and the peace and the joy and the perfection that goes with it. And so God says to us this morning, he says, make room now. I want to give you as much of this love in this life as you can possibly know. Give all of yourself to me. Be magnanimous. Stretch your soul. Get rid of everything that would hinder you. Lift high. Your heads are you gates that the King of glory might come in. Amen. <clears throat>